0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 17. Many Christians refer to John 17 as the Holy of Holies. It is one of the most beloved and transcendent chapters in all of Holy Scripture. It may be the most theologically dense chapter in all the Bible. It may be the most encouraging chapter in all the Bible, and therefore, to state the obvious, we cannot do it justice in a mere 15 minutes of exposition. My hope is simply that this basic introduction Will facilitate a lifetime of study and devotion. This is the prayer of the Lord. It comes at the conclusion of the farewell discourse. Jesus has prepared them, and now he prays for them. Note that he prays such that they can hear. There is a horizontal dimension to prayer. Jesus sometimes sought out solitude in order to pray to God on his own. But just as obviously, sometimes Jesus prayed in such a way as to edify and encourage other people. He does it at Lazarus' tomb. And he does it here in John 17 as well. The traditional approach has been to understand this prayer as having three parts. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. He prays for the disciples in verses 6 to 19 and he prays for the church generally in verses 20 to 26 we'll attempt to notice those transitions as we make our way through the prayer hear now the word of the lord beginning at verse 1 when jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh These first five verses represent Jesus' prayer for himself. He prays for two things in particular. He prays, first of all, that he may be glorified so that he may glorify the Father. The Strong's Greek Dictionary defines that word glorify as to render or esteem glorious, to make glorious, to be full of or have glory, to honor or to magnify. And I want to focus in on that last one, to magnify. To glorify is to see something as it truly is. It is to see something that had been previously difficult to see or previously obscured for some reason or another. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he was told that no one could see God's face and live, but then he was tucked away in the cleft of the rock so that he could see the afterglow of the hindmost part of God's glory. And do you remember what actually happened when Moses was tucked away in the rock and caught his tiny veiled view of God's glory? The Bible says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Consisted of hearing a proclamation of God's essential character. In fact, when if you go back in Exodus thirty-four, when when Moses first asks, he says, "God, show me your glory." God says, "Well, you can't see my glory. You can't see my face and live." But he says, "But I will make my goodness pass." Right. So there's a sense in which to see the glory of God is to see or hear or understand or catch a glimpse of the goodness, the the splendor, the beauty of. God so so God passes by in some very veiled sense and God speaks he says he is the lord the lord merciful and gracious abounding in love faithful to thousands forgiving iniquity and sin but by no means clearing the guilty rather visiting the iniquity of fathers upon children and grandchildren Basically, the sense we get is that seeing God's glory means seeing his character as both merciful and righteous. And nowhere, of course, do we see that anywhere better in the Bible than in Christ on the cross. Christ on the cross magnifies, as it were, the essential character of God. It shows us in painstaking detail the mercy and the justice of Almighty God. It it says very clearly that God is willing to forgive sinners. But it also says very clearly that God is willing to punish sin and sinners. That's, that's what the cross says. That's the message. It's hard to miss it. And that's how it glorifies God. And that's what Jesus prays for. When Jesus prays for God to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father, he is saying, use my death to show the world who you really are. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, God is clothed in splendor as he brings about this death exaltation of his Son." Carson's using the phrase there, clothed in splendor, to define what it means to glorify God. He goes on to say, God is clothed in splendor, God is glorified, as it were, in the eyes of those who perceive what has been achieved by God himself in the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of his Son. The character of God is is best seen and best appreciated through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb. That's what Carson is saying, and that is what Jesus is praying for. When I was a little boy, we used to—I think it was part of our, our preparation for Good Friday— we would often ask the question, or the teacher would ask, how much does God love us? And then we would all stretch out our, our hands as far as they would go to the sides, and we would say, he loves us this much, as, as though to say that— he loves us enough to put Christ on the cross. And I think that is true. I think that is marvelously true. And I think you should still teach that to your kids. I just I just think the next step is to say, ask the question, and how much does God hate sin? And then to again, stretch your hands out as far as they would go to each side and to say he hates it this, this much. That's the essential message of the cross, that God is a holy God, that he takes sin very seriously and simultaneously, equally marvelously true, God is willing to forgive sinners. That's the message of the cross. That's how the cross glorifies God. And I think that's important to say because so many progressive scholars nowadays want to suggest that God did not intend for Jesus to be crucified. These progressive scholars suggest that the cross says something certainly about the wickedness of mankind, but it doesn't say anything particularly about the character of God. But that's not what Jesus says. And it isn't what the disciples said, what the apostles said. In the first sermon preached by an apostle in the church under the power of the Holy Spirit, we are told that the cross was according to the will and design of God. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you hear that? Peter says that though Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, he was also crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan from the beginning. This was how God was going to climactically reveal the essence of his character and nature. So I think this this attempt to remove God, to remove providence, to remove sovereignty and intention from the cross is a very dangerous error. Of course, we learn a great deal about wicked humanity when we look at Christ at the cross. But Jesus is praying here that we will see something more than that. Jesus is praying that we will see and savor the glory and splendor of God. What a strange thing to find so many so-called Christian pastors working against the prayer of Jesus and the plan of Almighty God. The second thing we must notice here is that Jesus prays to be restored to the glory that he had before. The incarnation, of course, was an act of humility. We're told in the Bible and in Philippians 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be held onto. Rather, he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. That was, of course, the point of John 13. And that was intended to front load the cross. The cross is the ultimate act of Christ's humiliation. But it is also the beginning of his exaltation. It is the way by which he will return to the glory that he had before. Jesus prayed for that, and that prayer was most certainly answered. Thanks be to God. In verse 6, we enter the section of the prayer wherein Jesus is found interceding for his followers. We will read all of that and then notice the five specific things that he prays for at the end. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and i in them as we mentioned at the beginning most scholars see three sections in this prayer jesus praying for himself in verses 1 to 5 jesus praying for his disciples in verses 6 to 19 and then jesus praying for the for the church in verses 20 to 26 but for the sake of time we can deal with them collectively under the heading Jesus prays for his followers, both his disciples and those who would come after. And we can notice five specific petitions. First thing we notice is that Jesus asks the Father to keep his followers safe. We see that in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus is praying here against the danger of of apostasy against the danger of his followers falling away. Jesus says that he's been protecting them during his earthly ministry, but now, of course, he'll be returning to heaven. And so he asks the Father to protect them in his absence. And this, of course, reminds us, it takes us back to what Jesus was saying in chapter 16. He talked there about how the Holy Spirit would come and how part of what he would do would be to protect them in the world. That wouldn't be all he would do, but that would be an important part of it. Specifically, as I mentioned, we see that Jesus is praying for us to be kept safe from apostasy, from falling away in the world, and then from the devil. We see that in verse 15. There's a connection there, obviously. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The devil will be working overtime to try and scatter the flock of Christ and to lure the followers of Christ onto the rocks of heresy and neglect and apathy and apostasy. But Jesus is here praying against that. And the gift of the Holy Spirit, of course, is is part of how God answers that prayer. The second petition is related to the first. They're all kind of related to each other. They're interwoven. That's how prayer works. The second thing Jesus asks is that God would keep them one. We see that in verse 11 and then again in verses 20 to 21 where he sort of reiterates that prayer on behalf of the wider church and also in verse 23. Part of how the followers of Christ will survive the onslaught of the enemy is by remaining one, right? Remember, these are all related to one another. The first prayer is that we'd be kept safe from falling away, kept safe from our enemy who wants to scatter us. And so here as part of how Jesus protects us. He prays for our unity. When I hear that, I, th- I think of the shield wall, right? In this uh, uh, Because, of course, we need to protect each other. We need to have each other's backs. We need to keep close to each other. Uh, the lion takes the zebra who strays too far from the herd. The herd, the pack, the shield wall, that keeps us safe. Now, some people take this one petition of Jesus, and, and they set it against all of the others. They say, Jesus prayed for us to be one, Therefore, church discipline is wrong, or therefore all division within denominations is is, is wrong. And, and, and some will even go so far as to say the fact that there are individual churches in a town rather than just one big happy church is wrong. But that is to miss the, the point. That's to miss the context. The context is defense against the devil who wants to introduce error and falsehood into the church. John knew very well that sometimes you have to purge people from the shield wall because they're actually working for the enemy. John knew as well that wolves would occasionally try to get inside the protective confines of the herd. He knew that because Jesus said that. Matthew 7, 15, "...beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." So sometimes discipline and discernment and even division are necessary to keep the herd the herd and not a meat grinder, not a slaughterhouse. Sometimes it is necessary to remove enemies from inside the shield wall. The shield wall is supposed to keep us safe. We are safe when we are together around the truth of Christ. Thirdly, Jesus prays that his followers will experience the full measure of his joy. He says that in verse 13. I love what Colin Cruz says here. He says, Jesus' joy came from doing the Father's will, and the joy of the disciples would come from doing what Jesus commanded. So just as there is safety in orthodoxy, so there is joy in obedience. We don't always hear that. God's ways ways are truth and life, and and Jesus prays that God would keep us safely in them. Thanks be to God. Fourthly, he prays that the Father would sanctify his followers in the truth. We see that in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Carson says here, ideally, if someone is set apart for God and God's purposes alone, that person will do only what God wants and hate all that God hates. That is what it means to be holy as God is holy. Closed quote. Obviously, we can only learn how to do that through careful study of God's word. That's what the phrase sanctify them in the truth means. Fifthly and lastly, we see Jesus praying that his followers will be with him forever. We see that in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, ultimately, our experience in heaven is not about us. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the focus of our experience in heaven. We will enjoy seeing our loved ones. We will enjoy sitting down with the Apostle John and with Moses and Elijah. But first and foremost, we will delight in and exalt in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. And that takes us back to something Jesus said near the beginning of his prayer. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. That that is what heaven is all about. That is what the eternal kingdom will be all about. Knowing God as he has revealed himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus prays for his disciples. That is what Jesus prays for us. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.